Richard Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine, and we are extraordinarily fortunate to have him here today. He's one of the nation's leading authorities on election law, campaign, campaign finance reform, and he's the author of three very influential books, The Voting Wars from Florida 2000 to the Next Election Meltdown, which is terribly timely, Plutocrats United, a title I love, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court, and the Distortion of American Elections, and the Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia, and the Politics of Disruption. His op-eds and commentaries have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and Slate, and his widely read election law blog was named by the American Bar Association's journal as its Blog 100 Hall of Fame in 2013. He was recognized as one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America by the National Law Journal and one of the top 100 lawyers in California by the Los Angeles and San Francisco Daily Journals. Thanks so much for the introduction and, and thank you to Leonard and Dana, to all of you. I, I've spoken at many venues. This is truly unique and uh, what a great opportunity. So um, my talk today is actually uh, about a book I'm working on in progress. Uh, and what was passed out in the reading is not my book in progress. That is actually a chapter in a book, an edited book, um, uh, on all kinds of issues related to um, American elections and elections in comparative perspective. Uh, what I'm trying to do in, in the new book is, uh, as I did in the voting wars, is tell the stories of the dysfunction in our democracy by telling stories about people. And so I'm going to tell you a few of those stories uh, today. Um, what I have to say is, I think, quite depressing. I was glad to hear that uh, we have an expert in meditation here. I think by the end, uh, we're all going to need some mindfulness to try to uh, get through. Um, and rather than give a formal speech for 30 minutes, uh, I just gave a, a, an opening plenary at a Martin Luther King Day event about um, the unfinished voting rights revolution of Dr. King. And that's fine in a formal setting, but this seems like more conducive to conversation. So I'll just speak a little bit um, for about uh, 25, 30 minutes. Um, and I thought I'd start uh, with um, a question, which is uh, how many of you uh, have current good memories of the 2000 election campaign, which culminated in the Supreme Court's decision in Bush versus Gore. Just so I can see by a show of hands. Okay, so there's a little bit of a generational divide. Uh, I, I remember after the 2000 debacle, uh, I used to joke with my students, there was a disputed election in Florida. You may have heard about it. And now I tell my students, there was a disputed election in Florida. You may have heard about it. Uh, my daughter, who is um, uh, going to be 25, has memories of uh, watching uh, me on the O'Reilly Factor uh, on TV and asking my wife why that man was being so mean to daddy. So, uh, uh, so, that's, that's, so she has some memory of, of those moments. Um, but so just to briefly recap what happened there and to kind of set the stage for what happened afterwards, um, the 2000 election came down to Florida's electoral votes. It was extremely close. Uh, fewer than 2,000 votes separated Bush and Gore on election night. Gore had conceded the election and then unconceded the election after realizing that the election was going to go into a recount. Uh, it took about 36 days for a series of attempted recounts, legal maneuvers, uh, uh, 30 lawsuits. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, 
the, a divided Supreme Court stopped a recount that had been ordered by a, the Florida Supreme Court um, uh, of certain ballots, and in the end, uh, Bush was declared the winner, having won Florida's um, uh, almost six million votes by 537 votes. And that, uh, that of course, was an estimate. Uh, what we know is that the margin of error uh, greatly exceeded the margin of victory, uh, that our, the election system was very troubled. And so let me mention a few of the troubles. One I've already mentioned is technological troubles. Many people were voting with punch card ballots. Uh, you may remember this, this, this famous picture of the guy holding up the ballot with the, with the microphone and the huge eye, with the, looking for the hanging chad, the pregnant chad, and all of those things, trying to discern what a voter intended by pushing a little metal, piece, a little metal pin through a piece of paper and trying to figure out voter intent. Uh, we think about uh, across the country, more than a million voters uh, lost their votes. They've tried to vote for president, but their votes weren't counted. So we had serious technological problems. But there were other problems as well. So for example, um, we learned, or many of us learned, uh, that uh, our elections were not single national elections. We didn't hold one election day. We held something like 10 to 12,000 election days. That's how many election jurisdictions there are in the country. Each has their own set of rules. Some of it is federal, some of it is state, some of it is local, and there's a huge variation in machinery, in rules, in how things are done. We also learned that many of those election officials are partisan election officials. That is, they are, and I don't mean they acted in a partisan way, I mean they were literally elected in partisan elections or appointed as partisan officials. So the Florida Secretary of State, who the Democrats uh, um, thought was a, 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 a demon, Catherine Harris, she was an elected Republican. The Florida Supreme Court, uh, majority Democratic elected. They were seen as the, uh, as the, as the devil by uh, many Republicans. Uh, so there was partisanship from the people who are counting the ballots uh, to the end. And in fact, uh, Florida uh, is great for researchers because everything in Florida is a public record, including ballots. And so the, all of the ballots were sent to uh, a research center in Chicago after the election was over, after Bush was sworn in, and they had researchers who were being paid count the ballots to figure out if they were votes for Bush or votes for Gore after the election is over. And even then, researchers who self-identified as Democrats were more likely to find votes for Gore than researchers who, were, uh, who saw themselves as Republicans. So partisanship really throughout the whole process. Lack of centralization, um, localization, and uh, the main lesson that I think people learned um, on the political side was um, in a very close election, the rules of the game matter. And so what we saw then emerge after Florida 2000 was not, let's just fix everything. Uh, the machinery, we did a much better job of fixing, although I'll talk about some problems with the fixes. Um, many fewer lost votes uh, than we had in 2000. But um, not a single state has moved from partisan to nonpartisan administration of elections. One state has moved from nonpartisan to partisan. Uh, that is Wisconsin. In Florida, they took the elected partisan secretary of state position, and it became a gubernatorial appointee, making it even more of a political appointment. And in fact, you may have heard just three days ago that the brand new three-week-old secretary of state of Florida uh, just resigned after photos came out about two months after Hurricane Katrina at a Halloween party where he was dressed in blackface 
with falsies and lipstick with a t-shirt that read uh, Katrina victim on it. That was Florida's Secretary of State. He's, he's no longer Secretary of State. Uh, so we haven't learned less than partisanship. We haven't local, localism. We haven't changed that. There are some rules that have been made more uh, federal, some rules made more statewide. But what we see now is what I call the emergence of red state election law and blue state election law. And so in many states, we've seen that um, laws are being passed uh, in states with Republican legislatures and governors that have made it harder to register and vote, and laws that, uh, and states that are headed by Democrats have made it easier to register and vote. And lest you think the Democrats are just acting out of the goodness of their own heart, um, both of those seem to work in the same way, which is that people who are least likely uh, to vote, people who are most likely to be influenced by the rules, are people who are, who are most likely to vote for Democrats. Young voters, people who've moved, poor voters. These voters are most affected by registration rules and other kinds of changes. And so making it easier increases the Democratic electorate. Making it harder decreases the Democratic electorate. So we're seeing a lot of, of that. We see the fight over voter fraud and voter suppression. I'll talk a little bit more about that. It's become a campaign issue. Um, and we've seen a litigation explosion. So I've been tracking the amount of litigation, how many times are people suing over elections. And the amount of election litigation has more than doubled in the period past 2000 compared to the period before. And in fact, just comparing the 2012 election season to the 2016 election season, the amount of litigation was 23% higher. So not only do you fight over the rules, you then litigate over the rules uh, in a close election. So all of these things are kind of the new normal uh, in the voting wars. But what I want to talk about today is not that. Uh, that would simply be a sequel to my book, The Voting Wars, my 2012 book. I want to talk about new challenges. Uh, uh, we might think of this talk as, can American democracy survive the 2020 elections? And I have four reasons or four areas where I'm concerned. And so uh, I'll call those the new wave of vote suppression, uh, the weakest link in competence in election administration. Dirty tricks, they're old, they're new. We've got uh, a, a new variety of those. And uh, the last uh, challenge uh, has to do with rhetoric. I'll call that rigged or stolen. And what, how people talk about elections in a way that is different than they did before. So. Uh, let me take you to a courtroom just, uh, just earlier, I guess, in March of 2018, so uh, about uh, 10, 11 months ago. A uh, courtroom in Kansas City, Kansas, where um, uh, the state of Kansas was seeking to defend a law that it passed that requires documentary proof of citizenship before you can register to vote. So ordinarily, California, you want to register to vote, you fill out a form, you have to provide some information. And one of the things you do is you have to sign under penalty of perjury that you are an American citizen. And for the most part, that is how we uh, affirm citizenship. In a few states, uh, including Kansas, another one being Arizona, states have passed new laws that say, well, uh, if you're going to be a new uh, registered voter, you're going to have to provide either your birth certificate or a naturalization certificate or a passport or something else that, it's a kind of a show me your papers law that, uh, that somehow proves that you're an American citizen. And 
the question, this, uh, this law has been challenged since it was passed about five years ago. The question that was being put on trial based on how the case uh, came together was how much of a threat is non-citizen voter fraud in uh, the United States? And the person uh, you may know, uh, you may have heard of him, uh, who's a secretary, who was until uh, this past month the Secretary of State of Kansas, a guy named Chris Kobach. He's someone who's been uh, very closely associated with the uh, anti-illegal immigration uh, movement. He's uh, been an advisor to President Trump. He was the one who was put to be the head of that voter fraud commission that ended up getting disbanded. So Kobach um, was the one who had brought this litigation. And uh, not only did he bring this litigation, uh, he personally was the trial lawyer in the court, which is almost, uh, I mean, it's, it's unheard of as far as I know. I can't say it's never happened. But usually the attorney general's office would, um, would, rec would be the one representing the client. Now, just to cut a little bit to the chase, uh, how did he do? He was sanctioned $1,000 for lying to the court, and he was sentenced to, uh, as another sanction, to uh, six hours of a continuing legal education to learn the rules of civil <laughs> procedure. But the question that the court had to figure out was, how much of a burden are these laws, and how necessary are they? As to burden, we know that up to 50,000 Kansas, would-be Kansas voters had their registrations put on hold because they didn't have the right papers. And until there was a lawsuit that let those people vote, those people would not have been able to vote. So we can say there were people who were unable to vote. Unlike these voter ID laws where there's a real question as to how much they're deterring people from voting, not really any question about this. We can actually count. Well, how many non-citizen voters are there? So the other thing that Kobach got the Kansas legislature to do, also unheard of, is give him direct prosecutorial power to go after um, voter fraud. And so he said, I'm going to find this. The amount of voter fraud we know about, tip of the iceberg, is what he said. And um, he brought, I think, a total of nine cases. Almost all of them involved rich Republicans who've had, who owned homes in two states and voted in both states. Not a single case involving an illegal immigrant voting. But he said, no, there's a lot of this. And he brought in an expert, uh, an expert who had said that there's a lot of voter fraud uh, committed by non-citizens who are voting. And he relied on some survey data that the person at Harvard who designed this survey said he shouldn't rely on, that 200 people who are political scientists signed a letter against this person misusing the data in this way. This was the expert for the state of Kansas. And uh, so uh, basically he extrapolated from a study to say that there were somewhere between zero and 32,000 um, non-citizen voters in the state of Kansas. They couldn't find any in particular, but they, this. Um, but one way that he was trying to figure out how many non-citizen voters there were is he looked at those 50,000 people whose, whose um, names were put in uh, on the suspense list because they didn't have the right paperwork. And he tried to figure out how many of those were actually non-citizens. The way he tried to do it was to figure out how many had, quote, foreign-sounding names. <laughs> and so he, and where the foreign-sounding names come from, foreign-sounding names came from what he and his research assistant thought were foreign-sounding <coughs> names. And so he was questioned by the ACLU's lawyer, Dale Ho, who has this great courtroom presence, 
Um, why did, were some Lopez's considered to be non-citizens and others were? But uh, I'm going to read you just a bit of the transcript. Um, this is from Dale Ho asking the question. Question, just hypothetically, Dr. Richman, if you came across the name Carlos Murgia, would you code that as foreign or non-foreign? I'm sorry, could you spell the name? Sure, Carlos, C-A-R-L-O-S, Murgia, M-U-R-G-U-I-A. Answer, probably. Probably what? Probably would code it as foreign. Okay, are you aware that Carlos Murgia is a United States District Court judge who sits in this courthouse? <laughs> Answer, I am not. <laughs> so, so at the end of the day, um, the trial judge found that there was not an iceberg, but an icicle. Uh, that there was no evidence that non-citizen voting was a significant problem. And I would say, literally just today, Donald Trump tweeted about a new report of 58,000 non-citizen voters in, in Texas, which is, I think is going to meet the same fate as what we've heard. Donald Trump said, tip of the iceberg. And it would not surprise me if Chris Kobach had sent him a little note saying, you know, that's the language to use. So that's one of the problems that we face, is that I'd say in many red states, including in, in some places you would be surprised, in Ohio, they've done things that make it much easier to vote, like online voter registration. This is not every red state, but there are some red states where voting is becoming much harder and where in, the, in the, my 2012 book, The Voting Wars, I said, I'm not sure that these efforts of voter suppression actually are suppressing the vote. They actually have a countervailing thing that they get people excited and they get to register and they, they vote. I think these new, this new wave actually could have an effect on the outcome of votes. And I would say the most important thing is not whether they are affecting who wins or loses the election, but the question I ask is, why should the state be able to make it harder for eligible voters to be able to register and vote unless the state can come up with a good reason for it. And so far, the reasons that are offered appear to be pretextual. They appear to not be what they really are. They appear to be about preventing fraud or promoting voter confidence, but there's no evidence that these laws are doing that. And in fact, I'll, I'll come back to a kind of law that might help with this, but that is not on the agenda. That has to do with absentee ballots, so I'll come back to that. Okay, so there were four things I've spoken of the first, the new wave of voter suppression. The second is um, the weakest link. So American election administration, it's a very difficult job. People are under-resourced, often they're underpaid. They're asked to basically put an army together to run this uh, activity, and sometimes, as in California, we have special elections, we have very long ballots. It's a lot of work. Lots of people are voting by absentee ballots. Those take a lot of time to process. It's a gargantuan task that is um, under-resourced by uh, state and local governments. And yet, we tend to do a pretty good job in most places. But in a very close election, most people doing a very good job is not good enough. And so let me talk about Brenda Snipes. Brenda Snipes was, and maybe still is, that's a question, the uh, head election administrator in Broward County, Florida. Uh, well, I'll tell you, her status is uncertain. I'll tell you what, what's happening with her status in a minute. But um, you may remember in just this last election that there were three races that were extremely close in Florida on election night. The race for U.S. Senate between Rick Scott, who was the sitting governor, and uh, Bill Nelson, who was the sitting senator running for re-election. 
the governor's race, that was between DeSantos and, and Gillum, and a state agricultural race. And the election was close enough that it triggered an automatic machine recount of ballots. Means the ballots have to be run back through the ballot counting machines to figure out um, uh, if the totals were correct. So these it, it was a very short time frame set by Florida law as to when the ballots had to be recounted. And uh, the closest race was that Senate race. And there were all kinds of problems in Broward County uh, where uh, the commissioner, uh, the, the, the head of elections, did not tell uh, Rick Scott's team how many ballots were left to be counted in the days going up. He had to sue to find out how many ballots were left. Usually that's a public record and it's very easy to get that information. They ran their machines all night, got their totals. That's better than in Palm Beach County where the machines overheated trying to count so many ballots. Uh, now, uh, in fact, there, that commissioner, that, that head of elections has also now been suspended by the governor. There it appears that a, an election worker who thought the machines were counting too fast stuck a paper clip to try to stop the machine from counting. But that's a different story, not the Brenda Snipe story. So the Brenda Snipe story is they finished counting at one in the morning on the day they had to get the ballots in by three o'clock in the afternoon. And then they just had 385 ballots to process by hand that could not go through the machines. They got all the vote totals done in time. Three o'clock comes and turns out it, they did not submit the totals until 3.02. And they're, under Florida law, their totals were not counted. Why didn't they submit it on time even though they had finished counting many hours before? Because the person who was supposed to uh, run the machine did not understand the software to be able to send the numbers to the state of Florida. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Brenda Snipes. In 2004, she came on right after the troubled 2000 election. Um, in that election, her office failed to deliver 58,000 ballots to absentee, ballots, uh, absentee voters who requested them. In 2012, they discovered 1,000 un uncounted ballots in the offices a week after the election was over. In 2016, um, the office left a medical marijuana initiative completely off the ballot. Um, that same year, they posted election results from absentee ballots before polls had closed. And she destroyed ballots in, um, uh, after 12 months from a recent election, even though federal law required them to be held for 22 months. Um, but this last election was the worst. In fact, I told you how that counting, um, uh, they didn't get the, the, the recount done in time. But because the election was so close, there was a second recount just for that governor, just for the uh, senator's race. And um, they did the manual recount just for that senator's race. And in Broward County, when they finished counting all the ballots all over by hand, just in that one race, they had 2,040 fewer ballots than they had when they started on election day. And so the board voted, we're not even sending in our new numbers. We're sticking with our election day numbers. Quote from Brenda Snipes, the votes are in the building. I know it sounds trite. I know it sounds foolish. Some of our staffers are not as well trained as others. And so Snipes announced that she was going to resign. Then the governor, uh, Rick Scott, who's the, who was the outgoing governor who was on the wrong end of this, announced that she was suspended. So she said, I'm not quitting. You can't fire me. I'm suing. And so uh, he's appointed a, an alternative. And now there's a lawsuit 
pending as to whether or not she can get her job back. When elections are this close, it doesn't matter that most election officials are doing an excellent job despite being under-resourced. Who is it that Donald Trump attacked uh, on, on the night of, of uh, the election in 2018? Brenda Snipes by name. She was the sixth African-American woman he had um, uh, criticized in a three-day period. Um, and the, the entire um, atmosphere was one of an election being stolen. I, in this circumstance, use the computer science maxim Hanlon's razor, which is don't attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. And I think that that really explains what's going on in some of our areas. Uh, if we had more time, I would talk about the uh, now governor of Georgia, uh, Brian Kemp, who as Secretary of State did, if Brenda Snipes is the worst local election administrator in the United States, uh, Kemp was the worst state election administrator in the United States. We can come back to that uh, during our discussion. All right, so that's two of the four. Uh, two more. Dirty tricks. Dirty tricks have been around for a long time. Flyers that say Democrats vote on Wednesday, Republicans vote on Tuesday, right? We've seen these things. Uh, there was a, in my, uh, my 2012 book, I have a flyer that was uh, passed out in dormitories at the University of Wisconsin, which told students, um, vote at the polling place of your choice and listed a whole bunch of polling places. Of course, if you didn't go to your polling place that you were assigned, your vote wouldn't count. Didn't say that on the flyer. Uh, we've had dirty tricks for a while. But in uh, the most recent few elections, the dirty tricks have changed. And so you may have heard that there were Russian trolls who were supporting um, Roy Moore to be governor in the special election in 2017 in the US Senate race for Alabama. Roy Moore, remember, was uh, this controversial figure who was then accused of um, uh, being a pedophile. You know, there are all of these accusations flying around. He's running against Doug Jones. Doug Jones eventually wins that race. Um, but there were all of these accusations that, um, uh, just like in 2016, where uh, Russian government agents were trying to mess with the US uh, presidential election, you had uh, Russian uh, agents trying to boost Roy Moore. Around the same time, there was a, um, a new Facebook group. Uh, you probably can't see it. The group is called Dry Alabama. It's a group that wants to bring back prohibition to Alabama. Support Roy Moore and bring back prohibition. Well, it turns out there were no Russians, and that there were uh, that this group, Dry Alabama, and the Russian trolls were the same thing. It was a Democrat, pro-democratic group that was trying to support uh, Doug Jones, that was looking for a way to boost Jones through social media, using the playbook that the uh, Russian uh, government and others tried to do in 2016. And so while we may worry about foreign interference, I think I'm worried just as much about domestic interference. New round of dirty tricks. Uh, you know, we had uh, evidence of um, the, uh, you know, the, these Russian operatives organizing, my, this is one of my favorite stories in Florida, organizing a rally and a counter rally on opposite corners, on opposite sides of an immigration issue during the 2016 election, using the worst side of all of us against us. And you know, I think we're going to see more of that. One of the most interesting things to me is that um, the uh, efforts targeted African Americans. There were these uh, group called Blacktivist, which was a Russian-backed uh, front group that was saying, "Don't vote because Hillary Clinton is not doing enough 
for, uh, uh, to try to suppress the African-American vote. Uh, uh, and really, that was the only group where the Russians were actually trying to suppress the vote, as opposed to just trying to gin up more controversy. And so with our new age of social media and what I call cheap speech, uh, it's become very easy at very low cost to try to manipulate the election. And in fact, almost all of the election ads that the Russian government, according to the investigation, supposedly took out, almost all of those election ads would be perfectly legal under current law. And Congress has not changed that law. Very few of those ads said, vote for, and the only ads that said vote for anyone said vote for Jill Stein, who was the Green Party candidate. Most of the ads said things like, Hillary Clinton is a Satan. Well, it turns out, thanks to an interpretation by the Supreme Court and by when he was a, when he was a circuit court judge, Brett Kavanaugh, those don't count as election ads. And so foreign governments and nationals can spend to their heart's content on these things. So we're seeing a new wave of dirty tricks. But just because we have newfangled dirty tricks being used in elections, that doesn't mean that's all we have. And so we also have old style dirty tricks. And so you may be following or you may not be following. There's still one race that hasn't been called from the 2018 election. This is in North Carolina's uh, 9th Congressional District. And what we know there is that there's a question about absentee ballots in Bladen County in particular. And the accusations, which have not yet been proven and they're uh, subject to a further review. Um, oh, let me back up for a second and say, why, are they, why hasn't this been resolved yet? because the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor have been fighting over what the rules are going to be for who gets to be on the state election board. Three times the Republican legislature, which had a veto-proof majority until this past month, changed the rules. And three times the court said, you can't do that. It violates the separation of powers. And now there is no election board in North Carolina until January 31st. So we've, been, we've had a three-week period where there is no election board in North Carolina to do anything. But so they are investigating allegations that some political operatives in this one part of North Carolina were um, asking uh, for absentee ballots on behalf of voters and then intercepting those ballots and uh, destroying them, or collecting absentee ballots that hadn't been voted, and if they were voted for one candidate, taking them, and if they were voted for the other candidate, destroying them. Uh, it's a 961 vote difference right now in the election. And one of the workers for what will eventually be the new North Carolina board said that he believes there are enough votes in question that the election is uncertain and there might have to be a new election. This might be decided in state court. This might be decided by the US House of Representatives, which has the power to judge uh, election returns. Now, that's something that the House sometimes does. But what this shows is that it's not just newfangled um, dirty tricks. There's some old stuff going on, too. And if you really cared about voter fraud, uh, the first thing you would do is you would say, no more absentee ballots, uh, only for people who really need them. Because absentee ballots are cast outside the presence of election officials. They can be bought and sold. I tell a story in my 2012 book of an auction on the steps of a county courthouse in Georgia between two candidates for sheriff bidding over absentee ballots. So, in places, especially in rural areas where no one is looking, absentee ballot fraud, it's not a big problem. But if you look at the study of all the election prosecutions in the United States from 2000 to 2012 that was done by a group called News 21, 24% of those were absentee ballot cases. Less than 
2% involved non-citizen voting. Almost zero involved impersonation fraud, which is the kind of fraud that a voter ID law is aimed at. But absentee balloting is very popular. People like it. They want to be able to vote at home. And so we tolerate some voter fraud, and uh, risk of voter fraud, in order to be able to have convenience. Okay, we can make that trade-off, but that's not the trade-off that's being made when you require people to produce their papers in order to be able to register to vote. Very different trade-off with very different political valence. Okay, finally I come to my last, am I doing okay on time? Yes. Finally I get to my last of my four areas of concern, uh, which is, uh, the rhetoric that is used around elections. When Donald Trump was running for president, uh, he made statements about voter fraud committed by those people in the other communities, you know what I'm talking about. Th those are his words, not mine. Um, and in the 2018 election, he, uh, he accused uh, Democrats, including Brenda Snipes, of engaging in fraud to try to steal the election. And Democrats, too, have started using the language of stolen elections. I wrote a piece for uh, Slate right after the 2018 elections called uh, Don't Call the Georgia Election Stolen, despite the many bad things that I think Brian Kemp did. And I was viciously attacked by Alec Baldwin, of all people, uh, on Twitter, and Patricia Arquette. Uh, everyone, usually I'm attacked from the right, so it was kind of refreshing to be attacked from the left. But I was being attacked for, of course it was stolen. You know, we got into this whole question of uh, when is it appropriate to say an election is illegitimate? And I think that there's a real danger to rhetoric. Right? So what, how does our democracy function? It depends upon the losers accepting the election results and saying, OK, I'm going to try again next time. Right? It's, a, it's a very fragile thing. It's one of those things. It's not a legal thing. It's a norm. It's a norm that we all together agree that we're going to fight hard. But at the end of the day, when they say that this candidate has more votes than the other candidate, we're going to believe that. And we're going to accept that. And we're going to fight you know, you know, back another candidate, or the candidate can run again. Or, but when you start questioning election results, when you start saying that the other side is stealing elections, then you really tear at the fabric of our democracy. And I think people are very, because they see voter suppression, because they hear about voter fraud, people have become less confident in how our elections are run. And can you imagine a situation where the presidential election comes down to Florida again, and Brenda Snipes is the one in charge of counting the votes, and Donald Trump is the candidate? I mean, it's just like the worst of all worlds coming together. This is why I say we need meditation and mindfulness. It's very easy to, you know, Florida, how many times is Florida going to have a vote that comes, millions of people voting, and it comes down to hundreds of votes? It's, you know, really uh, very closely divided. It doesn't have to be Florida, but Florida is really giving a run for the money by having a, some, some terrible rules. Um, what are we going to do about the rhetoric? And uh, the flip side of that is when you do see groups engaging in what are efforts whether they're successful or not, to actually make it harder for people to register and to vote. Well, when does it cross the line into being called illegitimate? When does it cross the line into being called stolen? And Stacey Abrams, who was on the short end of a very close election in Georgia against Brian Kemp, said, I'm not saying it was illegal. I'm saying it was illegitimate. And trying to very 
thinly slice that uh, bologna. I don't know uh, if she drew the right line, but I like what she did next, which is that she filed a lawsuit. She and her allies filed a lawsuit that said, there are so many problems with how Georgia runs its elections. Don't look at them in isolation. Look at them together, and together, people are being denied the, their constitutional right to be able to have a, a cast a vote that's going to be fairly and accurately counted. And so, and I'm glad she's filing it now because it'll be enough time before 2020. I can tell you that a federal district court said that there's a very serious danger, back to dirty tricks, that Georgia's election system could be hacked, that there could be, a, that they could, Georgia's one of the few states that uses electronic voting machines to, um, for people to cast their ballots, and they're not secure. I'll tell you this, this la last story about Kemp, and then we can start turning to solutions. So um, Georgia's, uh, its voter registration database was being kept uh, up. There was a contract with a university, Kennesaw State University. And a few years ago, a computer scientist did some research and found lots of holes. People could go in, they could find the data, they could change the data, and he alerted state officials. And state officials did nothing for a long time until there was a lawsuit to try to force the state officials to make changes. Still a problem. They took the contract away. The week before the election, some guy, a uh, software engineer, goes onto the state website, the Georgia State website, and looks to see if his voter registration information is correct before he votes. And it was. And then he looked for, he said, oh, while I'm here, let me see what else I can do. And he figured out just by like taking out his name and putting in a question mark or something, he could get all the data and he could change the data. So, and it was still a problem. So he wrote to, the Democrats had a, um, the Democrats had a uh, election protection hotline. If you had a problem with the election, call them or email them. So he emails the Democrats and says, this is the Georgia Democratic Party, says, hey, there's a problem with how this machine is, uh, how the, this database is set up. It really runs the risk of somebody coming in and hacking. So the Democrats alerted uh, state officials of this problem. The next morning, this is Saturday morning, the election's on Tuesday. People are already doing early voting. On the Secretary of State's website, remember the Secretary of State is also running for governor, Brian Kemp. Secretary of State's website, Georgia Democratic Party investigated for voter fraud tampering, for, vote, for, vote, uh, for voter database tampering. And that stayed on the website through Election Day as the headline news, right under find your polling place now. And it turned out, as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigation showed just um, a few weeks ago, there was no indication that the Georgia Democratic Party did anything other than pass on information it had gotten from someone unconnected to them to state officials about a problem. A problem that state officials secretly fixed without announcing it uh, the day after they were alerted to the problem. And, and, and Brian Kemp went along to become, went, went and became governor of the state. How many people were influenced by seeing this false claim on the official's Georgia Secretary of State website? I don't know. But I understand why people want to call that election stolen. I just think it's very dangerous to use that kind of rhetoric. So for all of these, these four reasons, I'm very concerned that things have gotten much worse <coughs> in how we run our elections. And that if it's not 2020, it could be another election where we've had since 2000, we've been on notice about the problems, things have gotten worse rather than better. Okay, so now that I've cheered you all up, 
Um, we can move to talking about ways that we might um, improve things. So I just thought I'd open up with a very broad question, which is, uh, should we change who administers our elections? Should we change local, state, federal, uh, partisan, nonpartisan? Do we want to have elected officials running our election, appointed officials? Who appoints them? Uh, how do we do it? Is that an appropriate kind of question to open it up? Yes, and I'm delighted to hear you pose it that way. And definitely curious to know what those of you who studied the uh, election process and observed it now think would be the proper fix. As you respond and think about this, please um, make sure that a student approaches you with a mic before you speak so that we're able to uh, capture your question or comment on uh, our audio tape, which will ultimately be a podcast on our website. So uh, by all means, just raise your hand. A student will bring you the mic, and we'll get started. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, I think one of the solutions would be the way the uh, gerrymandered districts in states were handled by blue ribbon commissions, bipartisan commissions. If that could be put forward by some of the more progressive states first, perhaps that would be a solution to the problem. I can tell you that one thing, should, do I respond or do you take a Briefly. bunch of comments? Uh, I would say there are some states that have tried bipartisan commissions. Uh, one question is how you deal with deadlock. And then, you know, who is going to be the tiebreaker or how is the tie going to be broken? And that's something that people have fought over. That's part of the fighting in North Carolina right now. Uh, uh, we, the question was really what, I think there has to be a single uh, voting system for the entire country uh, with a single set of rules. Um, how to set them up is more difficult because it's such a partisan time. I did read somewhere, but there were, Someone suggested at least for voting, if you're doing a computer, there's a mathematical way that the voting machine can give you a number, basically, and you can use that when you get home to check your vote. In other words, nobody else can see it because it's just a it's a, it's a it's a cryptic number, and uh, which would be a way of reducing the chance of it being hacked. I mean, I can't prove that anything is unhackable, right? But at least that uh, to start, I, it doesn't solve the registration problem. Um, and it doesn't solve the partisan problem, but it's a start. And, and having a million different voting systems is obviously doesn't work. Um, if you're going to have a system like that, that's going to require computers uh, to be hooked to the internet, um, which are, you know, so people can get their votes. And when I talk to computer scientists, that's what they're most concerned about. Um, and so people say, well, you know, we have ATMs and they work fine. Well, we have a billion dollars in identity theft every year. So I'm not sure how that's just a cost of doing business. I, I'm, I, the computer scientists I know are very worried about the practicalities of having a linked system. And also, if you're going to have volunteer poll workers in polling stations who are going to have to connect computers not only to plug them in, right? We have all kinds of problems with computers being plugged in, but also connected to the internet, it does raise questions about whether they have the competencies to be able to do that. Uh, could someone get a mic to Ronaldo? And there is a mic in Alan's hand. This may be a pro, not what you were looking for, Richard, but um, do you have any examples of a state 
which is doing something good in this regard? Is, or is, there, is there any model upon which we might be able to build that you know of? I would say out of the United States. Most advanced, oh, I met someone from Canada. Yes, right, so Canadian system, uh, they have one type of voting machine for, na for their national elections. One type of voting machine, national voter registration, um, national voter ID card. I support a national voter ID card. Uh, you shouldn't need the card. You should be able to use your thumbprint if you want. But a single system run by, run by uh, um, civil servants would be a great system. But you know, there's a lot of path dependence. Because the United States has had decentralized, hyper-decentralized elections for 230 years, it's very hard to convince. And, and uh, the National Associations of Secretary of States fights as hard as they can against any kind of federal role for elections. And local election administrators don't like state election administrators telling them what to do. So it's really hard to get there. But I went and studied Australia's electoral system. They have a, a, a commission of three uh, nonpartisans, like the, the state statistician is on that. If you think about, someone mentioned the gerrymandering. So in California, the nonpartisan commissions, we have this really crazy system of how these uh, commissioners get appointed. But it does seem to take politics out. I, I don't know that we want to take politics out of the process of drawing district lines, but I certainly think we want to take politics out of the process of administering our elections. And so having some kind of bureaucratic solution, I think, would be a good one. But it's just hard to know how politically how to get there. So in your list, you, uh, you left out the fact that the uh, court struck down the Voter Rights Act. And that, many people believe, is one of the root causes of many states, specifically North Carolina and Georgia, and why they're now rogue in their whole voting issues. Uh, so the first question I would ask is, <clears throat> do you think that there is a possibility, because it's talked about a lot now on the Hill, that we could get back to repassing the Voting Rights Act in a way that would be, be able to get past the Supreme Court? And my follow-up question is, and this is off of what Chuck was asking, uh, since there's a lot of discussion now about replacing voting machines wholesale, en masse, there, there really are, there's a lot of talk, but we've got to replace the voting machines. And the common um, assumption is if there was a paper ballot, that that would give us a track, a record that the electronic does not. Would it not be possible that that paper ballot could require a signature at the end where you would initial it after you voted, it should show you what you voted, you'd initial it, and you'd leave at the voting place. That way there'd be an initial copy of proof of what you voted, and that would also be a paper record against which electronic tabulations could be made. So those are the two-part questions. Yes. So let me take the second part first. Um, the problem with initialing your ballot is then you no longer have a secret ballot. Right? So then someone can look and see who you voted for. Um, and so we can do that, but people really like their secret ballot. So there's nothing in the Constitution that requires a secret ballot, but uh, we, could, we, we could do that. Uh, w the best practice here, I think, is but people. It could be done without real initials. It could be a check mark. Any way to evidence that you would fact. Well, so, so the way this works in many places is you can look at the ballots, and if it looks right, you stick it into the box. And so uh, what I favor is people voting with paper and pencil, filling in, bubbling it in. They get counted through optical scan machines. And then we have random post-election audits to make sure that the machines are properly uh, counting the votes. That's seen as best practices among election administrators. On the Voting Rights Act, the Supreme Court struck down a part of the Voting Rights Act that said that states with a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get approval before they make changes in their uh, voting rules. And they have to show that those changes won't make protected minority voters worse off. That's the part that was struck down. I do think that 
Democrats are interested in passing uh, a change. There's going to be a proposal coming out in the next few months. Um, it used to not be a partisan issue. There used to be bipartisan support for the Voting Rights Act, but it's now become a partisan issue. And so I don't expect that a fix to the Voting Rights Act, which would help some of these problems, not all of them. Um, I do think that a fix will have to await uh, a Democratic Senate, House, and um, presidency. I actually wrote a piece proposing that if Democrats retake the uh, Senate and the presidency, that they should eliminate the filibuster for voting reforms, which would mean that they could pass with a bare majority, uh, because I think this is an urgent issue and needs immediate correction. Uh, Mail-in ballots. Oregon, I think, only has mail-in ballots. Why isn't that a pretty simple solution, assuming people won't break into the U.S. postal system? Does it work in Oregon? Are there, is there no voter fraud? And why can't we do it everywhere else? So Oregon is not the only state that is a vote-by-mail state. And I should say, in these vote-by-mail states, you can uh, drop your ballot at a, at a box. You don't have to stick it. You don't have to trust the U.S. mail. So there's a place you could bring it. But there's no polling places. Uh, Oregon has not, and uh, Washington and Colorado, we've not seen a lot of evidence of the kind of um, uh, vote buying or ballot stealing. Those have tended to happen in rural areas that are harder for people to track. Appalachia's had a history of this. South Florida's had a history of this. South Texas, poor Latino populations. So there are certain pockets where uh, there's not been adequate um, policing of this. So I think that, that what works in Oregon may not work in places where there's a history of vote buying, as we see in Bladen County. Um, it has not proven to be a problem so much in California, uh, but it could be a problem in other places. But I don't think it solves a lot of the problems. So for example, we know that in California, thousands of voters are being disenfranchised who vote with absentee ballots because an election official looks and says, oh, these signatures don't match. Well, I don't know about you, but my signature doesn't look like it looked when I was 18 and I registered to vote. Um, uh, uh, and people fill out the circles wrong uh, you know, when, they're, when they're bubbling things in. There are still problems. And you have uh, partisan election officials in some places. They still, they're still deciding which ballots are going to count. So while it would solve some problems <laughs> to move to mail-in ballots, it's not a panacea. And it certainly doesn't solve some of these other uh, issues. Absentee ballots also take time. You may remember that there were seven congressional seats in California that, were that were, had Republicans leading on election night that ended up flipping to Democrats because it took so long to process the ballots. And Orange County, Neil Kelly is uh, a great, he's a Republican, great election administrator in Orange County. Very competent. He came out from private business. He knows what he's doing. It takes days and days because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of ballots to process. So if you're going to move to all-mail balloting in a, a huge state like California, you're going to have to expect you're not going to know the results for a week or two weeks or three weeks in a close election. And then that, and then that raises the issue. Trump and others were saying, what's going on in California? They're stealing the votes. Right? So uh, everything involves a trade-off. <coughs> Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, since we've moved on beyond the, the, the initial prompt, there's so many fun things we could talk about. I've got a comment and two questions. The comment is, uh, it seems like all the trends are uh, from, uh, from the divisiveness and the gerrymandering and, 
and the tribalism that we're facing. The red states are restricting access and the blue states are expanding access. I find it quite telling actually that Minnesota is the only state in the nation right now that, ha that has divided legislature. The House is one party and the Senate is the other. Every other state, both houses are the same political party. Um, the two questions are, number one, um, can you talk for a minute about New York? Because I'm wondering whether New York might be a telling fertile ground for us to understand whether changes in opening access um, will, will lead to expanded voter participation, registration, et cetera. Uh, I'm fascinated with what's going on in New York this year. And then second is the United States Supreme Court. Will the court be hands off? Do you expect the Supreme Court to be hands off as these cases are coming forward and leave it up to, uh, leave it up to states and leave it up to localities? Uh, because their traditional thing has been states' rights until it tinged upon politics. So those are two things that I wanted to throw at you. So New York has some of the worst election administration in the country. If it were a Republican state, you would have demonstrations in the streets, uh, but it's not. And so you know, the politics there are very interesting about. Uh, so why did all of a sudden is New York passing election reform? Because real Democrats, there were Democrats that caucus with Republicans, real Democrats have taken uh, control in not just the state assembly, but the state senate. And Cuomo is under pressure. And so they're passing a whole bunch of stuff. And, and some of it's going to take years to go through. Some of it requires a state constitutional amendment like early voting, they're not going to be able to institute that before 2022. So it's going to be a while. So we'll have to see. But you know, I see this as New York catching up with much of the rest of the country. And you know, I think I should just say, I think that sometimes voting rights advocates um, exaggerate the extent to which these laws are suppressive. And so I'll just give you a, an example. Um, Ohio moved from having 29 days of early voting to having 21 days of early voting. And they were sued over it. And uh, one of those suits succeeded and the rest failed. But 21 days of early voting is 21 more days of, of early voting than they have in New York and in Pennsylvania and in a bunch of other places. And so some have questioned whether there's a one-way ratchet, that once a state expands voting rights, it can't contract it. And you know what happens if there are different? So some people think early voting is a bad thing because people don't know. Um, you know, what if there's an October surprise? People might vote. They might. What if a candidate dies? You know, things can happen. Um, can someone make a policy decision? We don't want to have that much early voting because of this concern. You know, so I think that's a question. As far as the Supreme Court, I'm very pessimistic about the Supreme Court and voting rights. Um, there is a part of the Constitution, though, that says that state legislatures get to set the time, place, and manner of elections subject to congressional override. And so far, the Supreme Court has recognized that Congress has the power. That Kobach case that I mentioned about the documentary proof of citizenship, a piece of that case went to the Supreme Court. And Justice Scalia, quite a conservative justice, wrote and said, that's a very strong power that the uh, Constitution gives to Congress to set the rules. If Congress tomorrow wanted to establish uniform nonpartisan election administration, uh, nonpartisan redistricting commissions for congressional elections, it could do it in a second. There's a lot of room for Congress to act there, even given states' rights. But on questions of whether states can pass restrictive voting laws against claims of equal protection, I'm not confident the Supreme Court's going to protect voting rights at all. Um, should I turn to another question? Or? Well, maybe let's um, let, let it open now and okay. see uh, sure. where the direction of the conversation goes. Well, it's a good follow to what you just 
to what you just said, with all the cases ending up in the courts now, how would you respond to Chief Justice Roberts, who said there's no Republican justices and no Democratic justices? So he said, I think he said there's no Obama justices and no Bush justices. Close. Yes. So I don't think he's right, uh, but I don't think that that means that Trump is right either. So I think in Trump's thinking when he's talking about an Obama judge did this, is that judges are voting uh, in a way uh, on the Supreme Court or, or deciding cases in a way if they're in a lower court uh, to favor the political party that they're a member of, a kind of rank tribalism. I'm a Democrat, so I'm going to rule for the Democrats. I don't think that's what it is. What I think is that increasingly, Democratic and Republican judges have different ideologies. They're appointed because of their ideologies. So it's not as though Neil Gorsuch, who's one of the newest Supreme Court members, uh, is going on the court, because he's a Republican, he's going to vote to favor the Republican Party. I really don't think, I think there's a kind of uh, uh, internalized norm of being fair that most judges have. But yet, judges have different ideologies. So some judges are very conservative, believe in original meaning of the Constitution, all these things. They're picked by political actors because they have those beliefs. They don't develop those beliefs as a cover for their political actions. But the result is the same. So certainly, I, I can, you know, a voting rights case comes to the Ninth Circuit, and people ask me, well, what's going to happen? And so my first question is, who's on the panel? Who are the three judges that have been picked to hear this case? Because that's a pretty good predictor most of the time. Sometimes judges surprise. So for example, the judge in the Kobach case, um, lifelong Republican, fourth generation African-American Kansan, fascinating chief judge uh, in Kansas City, uh, just really ripped to shreds uh, Kobach's claims. But she was a longtime Republican. So it really depends. Uh, but he was making claims that were so weak that you know, any sense of person. Here, here's a good way to tell what's gonna, how serious things are going to be. You may have heard about the census litigation. So there's a question about adding a citizenship question to the census, which many people believe is going to deter some people from answering the census questions. And this is going to skew to hurt areas with large minority populations and uh, areas with large democratic populations. A district court judge said that the way that uh, the Commerce Department, which is in charge of the census, went about doing what it was doing, uh, violated the Administrative Procedure Act. Right? It's not unconstitutional, but they didn't follow their own rules. And that they, if they followed their own rules, there's no way they could have done this, that it was complete pretext. Why did the Department of Commerce include the citizenship question? Why did they want to? They said, the Department of Justice needs this information for voting rights litigation because they need to know to help Latinos win their voting rights cases. And the, the, the emails that came out during the discovery process to figure out what's going on in this litigation showed that Wilbur Ross, who's the Secretary of Commerce, you know, Mr. Burns, um, he came in and he said, I wanted the citizenship question. How are we going to do it? And eventually said, we've got to get DOJ to ask us. And no one at DOJ was asking. And eventually it required Chris Kobach calling Jeff Sessions and then it happened. Or Chris Kobach talking to Wilbur Ross and then someone talking to uh, Jeff Sessions and it happened. Um, and so the judge said it's pretextual. This is, not, this, was, this is not about helping DOJ and it's illegal. The DOJ two days ago just asked the Supreme Court to take the case immediately to bypass the appeals level 
because this all has to be finished by June. Millions, tens of millions of forms have to be printed in June. And I think the Supreme Court's going to take that case. If the Supreme Court divides five to four and allows the citizenship question, you'll know there's such a thing as Republican judges and Democratic judges. Because this should be a nine to zero case. It is such a weak case that the government has that I don't think any fair-minded person who's read the lower court opinion could come to any other conclusion. But this is a very politically charged case. So this will be a good test case to see where this new Supreme Court is. I'll be watching Judge Kavanaugh especially, because it'll be one of his first big decisions as a Supreme Court Justice. So far we have been discussing principally your uh, first two concerns, the outputs, the actual voting and the counting of votes and the process by which this is handled. The second two concerns seem to me to be inputs, that is, things that might influence the way that people actually do vote. It seems to me to be a more difficult problem to ameliorate. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, I'm thinking of what, what order I told these in my first two versus my last two. So dirty tricks and rhetoric, we see those as internal. Yes. Yeah, I suppose some of that is true of dirty tricks and, and others are not. I don't know which, you know, in terms of what is a more intractable problem. Talking about rhetoric and telling people to tone down their rhetoric, that's a really hard claim to make because people are outraged. This is why Alec Baldwin and thousands of people were attacking me. You know, what do you mean I can't express my rage? But, you know, democracy is a fragile thing and that's really hard. You know, that requires really good civics education from pe people understanding our process. That's, not, that's a long-term solution. Um, these other things, when you talk about improving election administration, I think I do agree with you. Improving election administration uh, and getting rid of the, the weakest links and um, getting rid of the pretext that is being used to make it harder to register. Well, I, think those, I, I think I agree, as I'm talking about, that those are easier problems to solve than the other two. So I'm a little confused about where you're going with the partisan uh, person, you know, leadership of uh, administering elections because secretaries of state, even if you have an appointment, it's appointed by somebody. You can, you, you, so what you started out with early on was that in elections, we, uh, in a democracy, accept the results of an election and move on. And what I think a democracy is is and we're in a crisis right now, but that you expect the other side can run the government. You know, when you lose, you still don't revolt. You, you know, move on and the other side runs it. So I'm just, I'm kind of confused about when you keep saying partisan and should we have nonpartisan, how do you have nonpartisan other than just, like you said, a, a, a bipartisan where it's strictly even uh, commission, but I don't, you know, as somebody said early on, you probably need an administrator, you need somebody. And then just two other quick things. One is the, you mentioned in your uh, uh, article about the Election Assistance Commission or whatever it's called, yeah. um, that that is a government, a federal government agency that is out there that is supposed to help. I know that a couple of those states that you mentioned decline the help, including Georgia, I believe. But um, couldn't we do more with that and foster uh, better techniques of the states? And my last point is that, well, I'm not expert at all and couldn't even explain it, uh, really, but 
uh, I think blockchain technology uh, is a possible uh, solution at least to one of the questions, which is uh, the integrity of the ballot. Uh, and it's, you know, down the road. I, I know we're a long way away from that, but I thought I'd just throw it in. Well, let me tackle the third one first. I have no idea. I'm, you know, I hear blockchain and I stop thinking. I just don't know. The other two, I have more substantive answers. So um, how is it that uh, we have um, a system like uh, Australia's or the UK's or uh, Canada's or France's, like name an advanced democracy, Australia, they have nonpartisan election administrators. They have people who say, what is my primary goal? My primary goal is to make sure that every eligible voters, but only eligible voters, will be able to easily cast a vote which will be fairly and accurately counted. Like you could say their motto in one sense. So how can you get there here when we have this tradition of partisanship and localism? The proposal I made in my 2012 book was gubernatorial appointments subject to 75% um, approval of the legislature. Anybody that can get through, maybe Utah won't work, but anybody that can get through 75% approval in the state legislature <laughs> and the governor's appointment is going to be one of these people who stands above politics, who has a reputation. Start with people who have reputations as local election administrators, as people of integrity, and give them like Federal Reserve. Give them 10-year fixed term, can't be removed unless there's some kind of malfeasance. That's how I would do it. I, I, I always say, if someone's got a few million dollars, I'm willing to write a ballot proposition in California that would turn the Secretary of State's office into this instead. Um, right now, you know, Alex Padilla, he's a partisan Democrat. You know, he's using it as a stepping stone to become governor. I don't blame him. That's the way the system is set up. But that's not what we want the Secretary of State's office to be. Um, I think you know, it should be run by people who are committed to the integrity of the process. Uh, and that alone, and they don't have, they shouldn't be running for office, they shouldn't be endorsing for office, uh, right? So they, they, they shouldn't be contributing, they, they should be apolitical. And they say, if I'm gonna take this job, I'm gonna step away from politics. Just like the Federal Reserve, right? There are certain things, or some norms of journalists. You know, I'm not gonna participate in politics in the same way. On the EAC, I should say, in terms of election security, it's been mostly the Department of Homeland Security, and not the EAC. The AC was an organization that was created as part of the 2002 Help America Vote Act, which was legislation that was passed after the Florida debacle in 2000. And the EAC only gives advice and certifies voting machines as um, uh, 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 complying with security standards. From 2009 till two weeks ago, it had, did not have a quorum of commissioners because the House Republicans were trying to disband it. The National Associations of Secretaries of State, which are the state chief election officials, have been trying to disband it. They see that it has too much power, even though it has no power. That's how much resistance there is to an increased federal role in our elections. And it, it's a time when we could use federal assistance with our elections. And there were a few states, including Georgia, Georgia, Brian Kemp, not only did he refuse help from DHS, he accused DHS of hacking into the Georgia voting machines. And so they did an investigation, what was it? Um, someone from DHS was using the, a different part of the Georgia Secretary of State's website to verify people's employment for, because they were gonna be hired by DHS. That's all it was. All they saw was that someone was visiting from DHS and he accused them of hacking as opposed to dealing with the real problems. I'd like to probe the 
<clears throat> rhetoric issue a little further. No, I couldn't hear you. The what issue? I'd like to probe the rhetoric issue a yes. little further. We haven't really gone very deeply I into that, and we do have a couple of issues that stick in my mind when I think about this. First of all, freedom of speech. And, and secondly, the distinction between what you seem to be talking about a lot, which is people uh, making rhetorical points that seek to undermine the legitimacy of the political process, as opposed to people making <clears throat> impassioned and extremely strong and deeply held uh, uh, positional arguments about the various things upon which the political parties disagree. And uh, while I can understand um, the first kind of rhetoric being problematic, it, from, from my perspective, robust partisan debate and impassioned um, political speech about substantive issues is essential to a thriving democracy. And I'd rather not see that su suppressed, and e even when at times it can be extremely abusive, and all you have to do is read the debates between the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans to see that. Um, so I wonder if you've thought about how you can finesse those distinctions some so that we can have robust speech in democratic politics but not allow people to undermine the system through their rhetoric. I meant to, I think, only go after the first type of speech. So I, I'm not trying to stop strong partisans from making claims about what's a better vision of America or even making factual claims about whether you support higher taxes or a you know, stronger military or whatever those things are. But when the discussion is about the legitimacy of the casting and counting of ballots itself, that is what I put into a different category. And I'm not suggesting that the solution to this is legal. I have the same concerns with you about uh, this. I, I, it, the same thing comes up in terms of false speech, right? So we could all be worried about so-called fake news, uh, you know, where people are putting false news stories. You know, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, is uh, suffering from a serious medical condition or whatever it is. But the solution there of saying the government can tell you what's true or what's not true, that, that's, especially if it's Donald Trump telling you that, he's declaring what's fake news is going to be different than what I think other people who have a different view of the truth is going to say is fake news. So the, my last concern is not something that can be solved by uh, legal, with legal, a uh, new law cannot solve this problem. It's a problem that can only be solved with, I think, civics education. And so one of the reasons I'm writing this book is I want us to have a conversation, a national conversation, before the election about what it means to talk about accepting the results as legitimate. And especially if Donald Trump runs for office again, uh, it, not in my lifetime have I seen so much passion on both sides in, in any election. And I'm really concerned. What happens if Donald Trump does not accept the results of the election? Uh, what, you know, uh, what would that look like? Um, because he's the one who said, when he was asked, um, will you accept the results of the election in 2016? He said, yes, I will, if I win. And you know, that can't be the right result. And then Hillary Clinton also said things that were problematic during that election. And so I really think it's, just me using my free speech to point out the dangers of that kind of rhetoric. But I, I don't see any legal solution to this problem. 
I just wanted to share some reporting that I did up about this issue in North Carolina, which is kind of ground zero a lot of this. Yes. The Republicans in North Carolina, um, after their reapportionment plan and was knocked down on racial grounds, came back with pretty much the same thing but said it was based on partisanship, and that's one of the fights. And the same thing is true, I think, with expanding or contracting the right to vote. My point about this is, um, in a lot of our politics now, th this is another example of political polarization. That is the, the I don't know who you're going to find, by the way, to have 75% of a legislature think that person's going to walk on water, but all right. But the point is that this no longer is an is a issue that's, quote, beyond politics. I asked Carter Wren, who was Jesse Helms' principal political operative and a, you know, one of the wiliest political guys in North Carolina, and I said to him, so basically what you're saying is for partisan reasons, the Republicans want fewer people to vote and the Democrats want more people to vote. And he said, yeah. And I said, do you think those are morally equivalent? And there was this really long pause. And he said, maybe not. But I think a lot of the resistance to all of these reforms are rooted in the fact that we have a transactional, four legs good, two legs bad now approach to politics. You know, it's like, it, is it good for the Jews, that old joke about Babe Ruth hitting three homers? If it's good for the Republicans, you're going to find, I think, relatively few Republicans willing at the state level to say, yeah, let's decrease our chances of winning next time by, by expanding the ballot, and vice versa. I do think that something that fights against that on the local level is professionalization of the group of election administrators. And so while the people who run state elections are politicians, the ones who run for office as Secretary of State, on the county level and on the sub-county level, there, is, there are attempts and there have been um, uh, efforts through Pew and others to try to inculcate values of customer service. What we're trying to do is figure out how to get every eligible voter to be able to vote. And I th so I, th I think that's a line of defense. Um, I think that helps. But I do think you're right. And one thing I've noticed, uh, right about um, how everyone is seeing it through a partisan lens, because one thing I've noticed is that this issue is something that people are talking about as a campaign issue now. I went to my synagogue and the sermon was on vote suppression. I couldn't imagine that even five years ago, that this is an issue that's a burning issue. You know, and people are, um, you know, it's going to be the Dem Democrats campaigning on this. It's going to be an issue. And, and I, I didn't mention this, but in 1982, the Democrat, in 1981, the Democratic National Committee sued the Republican National Committee. They claimed they were suppressing the vote of minority voters in New Jersey. Said they were sending uh, off-duty police officers in uniform to stand around polling places. They were uh, trying to get voters kicked off the ballot through a process called vote caging, where the ballot, where, uh, mail comes back and they try and claim that these people are no longer eligible voters. And the, um, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, when they were sued, they agreed to a consent decree that they won't engage in any kind of activities, so-called, what they call ballot security measures. They won't engage in these things and the, the, um, uh, as a way to settle the case. And the, the case started in 1982, they signed this consent decree, and it was extended, and it's been extended. And in 2000, it was supposed to expire December 2017. 
And the Democrats fought, and they said what Trump did in the last election by having, if you go to Trump's website during the campaign and sign up to be a poll watcher, you know, find the fraud. And Roger Stone was running stopthesteal.org. And there's all of this rhetoric about the, and Democrats went and said, see, the RNC is doing it again. And the judge said, there's no evidence that the RNC was involved in this. The RNC was separate from the Trump campaign. And they, you know, they, they, they did some discovery. And the Third Circuit just last month said, no more consent decree. Well, who's running the RNC this time? Donald Trump has taken over the RNC. So I think that the RNC is going to go engage in these ballot security measures. Democrats are going to yell vote suppression. And this issue is going to be a major issue in the campaign. It's not just going to be about uh, health care and Afghanistan or whatever the issues are going to be. The vote itself is going to be an issue. Probably good for my book sales, but really terrible for the country. Um, it's not okay. Um, I have a question about the Electoral College. I have been mildly coherent during uh, three presidents, two of which lost the popular vote. Um, do you see a future in the Electoral College? Because I don't. And I'd just like to hear your opinion on it. If going forward, that's something that's going to be sustainable. Well, so. I'm not sure if you're asking whether I think the Electoral College is morally justified, or you're asking whether I think it's going to continue, because those could be two different things. I mean, both, both are excellent So, So I do think that the Electoral College gives extra power to smaller states. Um, and it's out of sync with most of the, the way we conduct most elections. The other big one is the United States Senate, where you know Wyoming and um, uh, Rhode Island which have small populations, get the same representation as California, which if it were by itself would be a, quite a large country. Um, so I, th I, I, don't, I don't support the Electoral College, but I don't see a way to get rid of the Electoral College. There have been some proposals. The, mo the most common proposal, or the most popular proposal among those who are serious about this, is to move to something called the National Popular Vote, which a co it's a compact, it's an agreement among states, where if enough states agree that if their state legislatures, uh, enough state legislatures agree that if uh, their states have to vote their electoral college votes, they're going to vote it for whoever wins the national popular vote. And as soon as enough states representing a majority of electoral college votes sign on to this, it goes into effect automatically. And California signed on, you'd be surprised. We're pretty far, we're like three quarters of the way there. Uh, I think this is not good. I think this is a disaster, even though I favor getting rid of the Electoral College. Because first of all, it's going to get tied up in court. And there's a real question as to whether it's constitutional. Because there are certain kinds of compacts that states can't enter into without congressional approval. And there's a big legal argument about whether this fits into that category or not. But my main objection is this. The Article 2 of the Constitution says that the Electoral College votes are decided as each state legislature may direct. And so a state, suppose it's California, and it's 2020, and this is in effect, and Trump is winning the popular vote. It's going to be tremendous pressure on the legislature to say, we're pulling out of the compact. We're casting our votes for Kamala, or whoever is going to be the Democratic nominee. And I think the Constitution says they can do that. So uh, you know, that's a disaster. Talk about being in the conditions of uh, worrying about the legitimacy of the vote. I, I think if you want to change it, you need a constitutional amendment. To get a constitutional amendment, you need to get a supermajority in Congress, and you need to get three quarters of the state legislatures. How do you do that when a lot of those small states are going to lose? So 
you'd think that the popular vote winner being the electoral college loser so often recently, and maybe again in the next election, you'd think that that would spur change, but not necessarily, because that means that some people are getting what they want. And if those people are the ones who are in control of the small state legislatures, really hard to see how to get there. Have, have I depressed all of you? <laughs> not entirely, because we're at that point where, in the next five minutes, you can tell us a little bit about whether um, you feel one strategy or another is the best to pursue as an impassioned citizen seeking to protect the vote. In other words, we've talked a lot about the challenges to reforming the electoral system. And those are critical to our understanding of the strategy. But we also need some guidance from you about which are the key areas to work on most aggressively and um, how best um, to focus uh, our organizing. Is it at the local level, state, national? Is it through parties? Is it through uh, independent agencies of government? Is it through nonprofits? So where do we go to correct the um, inequities and the difficulties in the electoral system? Five minutes. Sure. Well, the short answer is I haven't finished the book yet, so it's going to be a surprise ending. Um, the longer answer is I think there's certain kinds of smaller, easier kinds of change which should be at the top of the agenda. Number one, improved cybersecurity. I mean, this should be a no-brainer. You'd think that every election administrator in the country would be seeking to work with the federal government to try to improve, to make sure that our systems are accurately recording the votes that people are casting. Right? Before 2000, people went into the voting machine, they pushed a button, and they didn't think twice. Now a lot of people are thinking twice because there are some real threats. Um, uh, and so improving cybersecurity, that is a public-private partnership as well. And there's a lot of role for NGOs there. Second, support for state and local election administrators so they have adequate resources. That's a budgetary issue. And getting rid of the bad apples. I don't understand how Brenda Snipes, running as a Democrat, continued to get reelected to office when she is just terrible. There should someone should primary her. You know, you, you, we need to put resources into these kinds of things. Um, well, how prevalent is it that there are terrible election administrators? You wonder if they do an audit, or forgive my yeah. interruption, but I'm curious about the one question I, on the federal level, how often is a dynamic like Broward County or this particular individual repeated in other states? Is it 7%, 10%, 3%, or is this anomaly that it happened in the same county? I, there are bad election administrators spread throughout the country. It's an equal opportunity problem, Democrat and Republican. <laughs> I would think it's fewer than 5% of election administrators who fall into that category of being below the level of minimal competence. Mm -hmm. But they sometimes are in very important places. Yes. Like one of them was in a county in Wisconsin. I tell the story at the beginning of my 2012 book, The Voting Wars, where a state Supreme Court justice <coughs> election flipped because the local election administrator who was keeping the vote totals on her laptop forgot an entire city in her county. She forgot to send all of those votes in, and it flipped the election results. So um, it hap it's rare, but 
you know, just like nuclear um, weapons experts worry about the very small risk of a very large catastrophe, it's the same kind of thing here. We have to plan against the catastrophes, and Broward is just one prominent example of that. Uh, so improve cybersecurity, support for state and local election administrators, uh, lawsuits and political actions aimed at stopping the most egregious kinds of vote suppression like the, the um, Kansas case where there really is no iceberg. Um, and um, fostering de discussions across platforms and venues about the importance of the rule of law, democratic legitimacy, and peaceful transitions to power. This is a longer-term civics project, which I think, I think we need to educate both adults and children as to uh, not to take the democratic process for granted. And we need to give them a reason to be confident that what gets announced uh, on um, Facebook or whatever, YouTube, whatever people are watching or reading, whatever's on their phone, that when it says that someone won by 6%, that we can actually believe it and not say, really? We're sure about that? Especially, so if you, look at, if you look at a polling over the last few years, um, you tend to believe that the election was fairly run. You're much more likely to believe the election was fairly run when your person won. When, when the other person won, you're much less likely. So I think we have to change that dynamic. Well, please join me in thanking Richard Hassan.